Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Israel has set out to destroy Hamas. How can it take down tens of thousands of fighters packed amongst a population of more than two million living through a humanitarian crisis? In the case of Mosul, when it went well was when they moved fast to secure an objective, when they were slowed down, winding out building by building. It felt a bit like taking the trenches of the First World War and putting it into a city. Major General Rupert Jones shares some lessons from his time leading the campaign against the Islamic State terror group. And Mike will explain how those lessons do or don't apply in Gaza. Also on SITREP, the RAF's next generation of drone has just arrived in the UK. But what makes Protector so special? And MPs choose a new chair for their defence committee. So is it just a talking shop or does it make a real difference? There was quite a lot of dissatisfaction with the way that our armed forces were being transported to and from Iraq and Afghanistan. I think things improved after we went to visit Akrotiri. Sitrep with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark. In the 75 years since Israel declared independence, it has fought more than a dozen wars. Some have lasted just days or weeks. Others have gone on for years. Uh, Mike, it's pretty clear now that this war between Israel and Hamas is going to be a long haul with a high price. Yes. Uh, I mean, its previous wars in Gaza in uh, 2008-2014 were over in uh, usually about 18 days, 18-20 days. I mean, nobody pretends this will be anything like that. This is going to go on for months. And Israel, having been caught so badly off guard on the 7th of October, has got to try to recreate the idea that it cannot be attacked with impunity. And so whatever happens in Gaza over the next, say, let's say, months, it will contribute to a bigger operation which the Israelis have got to try to develop over the next year or more to re-establish its sense of deterrence against the outside world that it faces. And Mike, Israel's stated aim is the destruction of Hamas. What's the comparison that people are drawing with the battle for the Iraqi city of Mosul back in 2016 when it was occupied by the Islamic State terror group? Yes, I mean, Mosul was a bit similar where Iraqi forces with Western help and some Western special forces retook Mosul um, as an urban area. Uh, It took nine months. Uh, It cost about uh, 10,000 civilian casualties, it is believed. About 80% of the buildings were either destroyed or rendered uh, unlivable in in that time. So it it was a classic case of destroying the city to save it. And that tends to be what happens. But of course, it all depends in this case on whether Hamas are prepared to fight for every building or whether they will put up token resistance and then disappear to live to fight another day to carry on the campaign next year when the Israelis have moved into Gaza, moved out again at some point and, and Hamas come back. But if they decide to, as it were, go down fighting, and they will go down, there's at most 50,000 of them against a, a breaking force of, of uh, about 150, 160,000 Israelis, um, if they fight, they will go down um, and they will make it very, very difficult. So could Mosul be a template for what happens in Gaza? Major General Rupert Jones was Deputy Commander of the International Coalition Against IS. 
Yes, I mean, there's plenty of similarities to what we're seeing in Gaza. I should say, of course, there were differences as well, because in Mosul, it was the Iraqis liberating one of their cities. And after lots of discussion, it was literally a decision to attack into the east of the city and slowly work their way through to the river Tigris that divides the city. And then they stopped and went round to the other side of the the city and then attacked in from the west and, and did the same. And what were the biggest challenges? I suppose in the case of Mosul, the biggest challenges were were twofold. I mean, the first thing is that fighting in cities is simply the hardest form of warfare. There's no question about that. But the second challenge was that Mosul was still occupied by its population, rather as we see in Gaza. So, So at the start of the battle, we think there were about one and three quarter million people in the city of Mosul. By the end of the battle, nine months later, 900,000 people had left the city, but, but that still meant there were an awful lot of people living on the battlefield. And so how you, how for the Iraqi forces, they fight through a city when there are people being used as human shields who are, you know, you're trying to discriminate between enemy and, and civilians. Uh, and also the challenge of bringing humanitarian aid to those people. So the, the human aspect, I guess, was really the hardest element. And you said that uh, that fighting in, in urban areas and densely populated areas is one of the most difficult places to uh, to be in combat. Is it for that very reason, because of the presence of civilians? I mean, that's certainly one aspect. I mean, the other aspect is there's so much in your way. You know, there's detritus. Everything is, is an obstacle. Everything is a potential hiding place for your enemy. So every building is, every street corner, every pile of rubble, every cellar provides the enemy potential fighting positions. Very hard to find your enemy and say to identify what is an enemy, what what is a civilian. To then maneuver through a city, to move your vehicles down streets that have probably got uh, craters in them or a building has fallen on them. And what also then happens is that it blunts your technical advantage. The Iraqi security forces supported by the coalition had an undoubted technical advantage over ISIS. The Israeli Defence Forces will have that advantage over Hamas. But the city blunts that advantage. It's just very, very difficult to bring your technology to bear. And what happens is you are drawn to a very attritional form of warfare where firepower dominates. You're drawn to use airstrikes more than you might wish to, to try and unlock an enemy position and reduce your own casualties. And in the taking of Mosul, what went right and what went wrong? What went right is, I I would argue, despite a huge amount of civilian suffering, I think actually the humanitarian operation was a great success. There was very close liaison between the Iraqi forces and the UN agencies and indeed us as as a coalition. The Iraqis, with quite a lot of mentoring from the international community, put a huge amount of effort into managing civilians. There was a lieutenant general who ran the, the fight He had a colleague, another lieutenant general, whose sole job was the humanitarian operation, working with with the United Nations. And the coordination between the military and the United Nations and agencies was was a real success story. That is not to say there wasn't a huge amount of human suffering, regrettably, there there was. So I would say that that was a, a, a really strong point. What didn't go so well? Look, look, the fighting was incredibly difficult. 
uh, had he said to us at the start it was going to take us nine months to get through the city, I think we'd have been pretty despondent. So it didn't go as quickly as we wanted for all sorts of reasons, some of which were to do with how very determined, uh, fanatical ISIS were in defending the city. Some of it was just because, you know, the battle doesn't always go as you hope. The Iraqi military had been redeveloped after losing to ISIS early in the campaign. You know, they only had so much ability. Uh, and so they found the, the fighting very, very hard going. I, I hope I'm confident the Israeli Defence Forces, by comparison, are the one of the best militaries in the world. They're absolutely optimised for fighting in, in cities. So they're, at a, they're a first tier military. And what do you think the lessons are from Mosul that can be applied to the current situation now in Gaza? I mean, I think one of the, the lessons is, you, you know, you just can't take a city room by room, building by building. At times it feels like that, you know, when you're on a particular area of the city, you are literally fighting room to room. But that, you can't take the whole city like that. You know, imagine how many rooms, how many buildings, how many cellars there are in Gaza, in Mosul. So, so I think the real lesson was what you had to try and do was select your objectives and then try and strike fast through a part of the city to secure what you thought was an important objective. And that might be, it might be a particularly dominating building, it might be a geographical feature, a hill or a river line, or it might be something of significance for other reasons. So in the case of Mosul, the Al-Nuri Mosque is a historic place and it was really important for the Iraqis to secure that. So when it went well was when they moved fast, they got up ahead of steam, if you like, to secure an objective. Where it went not so well was when, when they were slowed down, they find them, found themselves Finding out building by building, and indeed at times being stopped in their tracks for quite extended periods. And when that happened, it felt a bit like taking the trenches of the First World War and putting it into a city. So just this, you know, this awful exchange of fires, destruction of the infrastructure of the people. When the battle could start moving again, large swathes of the city were relatively undamaged. Of course, there were some marks from fire and things, but large parts, parts of the city where, where they advanced quickly were, were relatively undamaged. Gaza, obviously very different to Mosul, um, despite many broad similarities. Do you have any sense of what might be a bad idea to read across from Mosul to Gaza in that campaign? Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to be really careful about the strategic context which then plays down into what happens on the ground. So what I mean by that, this was the Iraqis liberating one of their cities and the bulk of the population wanted to be liberated. That context is different in Gaza. The Israelis are going in, in self-defense, to destroy Hamas. But Hamas are in amongst their own people. Now, I think we've got to be very careful of drawing too many, uh, whether Hamas is really acting on behalf of the Palestinian population is an entirely moot point. I think they're using the Palestinian population very, very cynically, but equally, I'm confident that the Palestinian population won't be particularly welcoming to the Israeli Defence Forces as they come in. Uh, it's estimated around 10,000 people died in the battle for Mosul, at least half of them civilians. Is there really no way to defeat an enemy in an urban area like Mosul or Gaza without 
such a high death toll of civilians? I, I really don't think there is. I, I had the great privilege of sharing a panel with Sir Anthony Beaver some years back, uh, who was the great historian who wrote really the definitive works, Western works on the Battle of Berlin and the Battle of Stalingrad in the Second World War. And and he talks about the kind of themes that he takes out from those those battles in the 1940s. And when I heard him talk about them, it was extraordinary how they echoed through the decades to what we experienced in Mosul and what I'm confident will echo into Gaza. Technology can only take you so far. Technology undoubtedly helps you use technology where you can, but I see no evidence that you can retake a city without ultimately really hard, brutal fighting. The final bit of Mosul to be liberated, literally, you know, in 100 square meters of the old city, fighting from it in the rubble, and the, the final clearance of that rubble was conducted by very, very brave Iraqi soldiers with rifles, with bayonets, and with grenades. It seems they were absolutely reminiscent of the Battle of Stalingrad in the Second World War. And, and I fear uh, the same sort of uh, brutal fighting in Gaza. Nobody should, should underestimate how hard it is for, for the soldiers doing the fighting the stress levels, the exhaustion, the fear, the overwhelming of your senses. And it requires very strong leadership uh, to, to fight in those sort of uh, situations. Major General Rupert Jones, great to speak to you. Thank you for your time. An absolute pleasure. Nice talking to you. Uh, Mike, um, one big difference, though, between Mosul and Gaza is the tunnels that Hamas have. They've had far longer to prepare for an Israeli invasion than IS did. Yes, they look as if they Hamas are preparing their operation on the 7th of October for well over a year. So they must have anticipated that the effect of their raid would be to bring the Israelis into Gaza in some way. So they will have thought about it. And that's why I think they've stockpiled things, including fuel. And the tunnels, of course, could turn out to be fundamental. There's more than 300 miles of tunnels, which is uh, something like 12 times the, the length of Gaza. And the Israelis, they've, they've thought about that as well. They've got, they're not going to go into the tunnels, as it were, and try and you know, run through tunnels like in the, as in the First World War. I think they've got a, a sort of device which seals the tunnels, like a great big sponge, which can mm. seal a tunnel at either end or halfway along, and then they can get on and come back and deal with it later on, trap anybody down there who is there. But, of course, one of the big complications of that is that it is assumed that quite a lot of the 200 hostages must be in the tunnels somewhere. Uh, and another key difference to Mosul, uh, Mike, is Rup Jones said in Iraq, 900,000 people left that city, more than half the population. Uh, mm. The people of Gaza can't yeah. go anywhere, can they? No, they can't. And I was doing some working out on this. If you look at, at how many people have Hamas got, uh, you know, f people who will fight, young men who will fight, old, older men as well, the number, the maximum number is 50,000. It's, it's probably a lot less than that. I mean, I think they've got about 15,000 with another 15,000 who've got some training. So I think there's 30,000 of them who are competent and then maybe another 20,000 who will turn out with an AK-47 or a rocket propelled grenade when they're feeling inclined. And mm -hmm. so the maximum number is, is 50,000, maximum. And then look at the population of Gaza. 48% um, of them are below the age of 14. So take those out of the equation. Look at the, the men that you've got left who are of, mm -hmm. let's say, Hamas age. And you've probably got about 600,000, between five, 550 and 600,000. So what um, Israel will be trying to do will be to kill or capture or drive out 
let's say, 50,000 men among a population of 550 to 600,000. And they have said, the Israelis have said, and they've dropped leaflets to this effect, saying that we will assume, particularly in the north, north of Wadi Gaza, that anyone who is still there is complicit, is a potential mm. combatant. And I think that means that they'll, they'll assume free fire on anyone who is male above the age of about 16. I think that's what they'll do. And, you know, the, the European powers and the Western world, they all accept the justice of Israel's cause in this. But when they go in, I think it will turn out to be exceedingly rough justice. Yeah. Um, we were talking there about action in Iraq in 2016, 2017, but it was interesting to hear President Biden warn Israel not to make mistakes that the US made after 9-11. What mistakes do you think he's getting at there? I think he's getting at the fundamental mistake that in um, uh, both Iraq and Afghanistan, um, military policy became divorced from the political strategy. And the political strategy was never given enough attention either at the beginning or even through the through the uh, the aftermath. And in this case, the, Isra the Israelis don't have a political strategy at all. They and they've said this that that Hamas must be destroyed. And when we've destroyed Hamas, then we will think about what next. And I think what Joe Biden is saying is, look, you've got to start thinking about what next now as has the rest of the world, because your outrage, which is absolutely understandable, should not be an excuse for not thinking politically. Because at the moment, everybody, both Israel and Palestinians, their only argument on everything is, look how much we hurt. Look how mm. much we are hurting. And you've got to get over that and say, yes, we know you're hurting. We absolutely understand that. But somebody's got to start to think politically. Mike, stay with us, because we're going to play you a sound of the future. That is the sound of a protector drone, the RAF's next generation of UAV. The first has just arrived in the UK and is now being tried out. Let's bring in Forces News technology reporter Claire Sadler. Claire, hi. Um, the RAF has been flying drones since 2007 in Afghanistan. So why is protector such a big deal? Well, as you say, it's the RAF's next generation drone, and that means it's going to advance our military capability. So let's paint a bit of a picture of this drone for those who don't immediately get one springing to mind. It's the opposite of the low cost, relatively small ones that we see being used so often in Ukraine. Protector is about 11 and a half metres long with a wingspan of 24 metres. And we know it can fly for up to 40 hours, up to 40,000 feet. So it's designed for those medium altitude, long endurance operations. Protector is coming in to replace the Reaper drone fleet. So taking on that I-Star role. So on board, it's going to have a high-end suite of surveillance equipment, including a high-definition electro-optical infrared camera, which is quite a mouthful, but basically that <laughs> provides total situational awareness both day and night, and importantly, um, from a distance. So back in 2021, I was at RAF Waddington, which is where Protector will be flown from, when the um, then Chief of the Air Staff was marking a pre-production example of Protector being tested there. And what he was really keen to point out, which is key to protector is the fact that it's the first remotely piloted air system that's being built to the same standards as passenger aircraft so it can fly in any airspace so any civilian airspace and what does that mean for the military well it can take off from the uk and fly anywhere so add to that the fact it can also take off and land on its own as well and you've got a lot more capability and a lot more flexibility as well so a big improvement to flight and therefore surveillance capability what about its, its firepower when it's being used for attack 
protector, yes, will be able to attack targets just like Reaper. Reaper can carry 16 Hellfire missiles. Protector will carry brimstone missiles and paveway laser guided bombs, a total of 21 at once. Um, So again, a step up from Reaper in the number. Uh, Mike, how does Protector compare to the drone technology of our friends and enemies? Are we at the very cutting edge or or are we we behind? Well, I I think we're at the cutting edge in the way that Claire describes in these things. These are the best around. Um, But in a way, what what they're doing is just taking the role of a piloted aircraft. I mean, they're Mm. they're more or less the same size. They do the same sort of things. But obviously, if there's no pilot there, you you don't have to worry about all sorts of other defensive issues. And they can be cheaper. So they they just take the role of an aircraft. And in that respect... Um, Britain is on a par with the United States, not not in terms of numbers, of course. Our numbers are still very, very small, but nevertheless, they work. The, the question is, really, the, the revolution in drone technology has not been in things like Reaper and Protector, but in the tiny drones, the handheld drones, all the drones that we see in uh, Ukraine operating below 5,000 feet. You know, and they're losing thousands of these things a week. They're, they're, they're using tens of thousands a week, and they're losing thousands a week. And this new, um, uh, as it were, level of the battle Field, this 5,000 feet um, above the ground uh, space in the battlefield is now a new space. And I don't know that we are particularly ahead of the game there because tactically we haven't really addressed that yet. We know about it, but we haven't really addressed it. And Mike, I said a couple of moments ago, perhaps slightly dismissively, that we've been using drones since way back in 2007, but they've gone from an edge capability to being absolutely central in less than 20 years, haven't they? Yeah, and the, and the sort of the um, concepts that we're looking at now, the concepts of the future air system, will be, you know, one aircraft, uh, Tempest aircraft, with four or five wingman aircraft, uh, which will be robots. And the same for ships. A, a new type of, um, could be a frigate, could be a destroyer, with three or four robot ships operating with it. So it, it completely changes the tactical situation if one, as it were, mother aircraft, mother ship, can actually um, control a robotic um, task force. And that's the area that we're moving into and we'll be there uh, in, let's say, 10 or 15 years. And that really will change the, the nature of the way we plan for military operations. And Claire, let's just be clear, uh, these drones, they don't have a pilot on board, but they still require an awful lot of human effort to do their work. Yeah, you still have essentially the crew that you would need to fly a plane, but they're sat in a ground control station, uh, which looks like a, an ISO container and a big hangar at RAF Waddington. Um, now, the benefit of them being able to take off from the UK and fly to wherever they want to go is that you don't need to load them onto a transporter plane, then take them to wherever their operation base is going to be. But you still might want to, of course, because they can fly for up to 40 hours and can do up to, I think it's 240 miles an hour. So there are some limitations depending on where you want to go and who you want to watch and who you want to target. Um, And of course, the drones still need to be loaded with weapons and still need the maintenance. So all of that requires involvement of skilled personnel. So testing is underway. How many protectors are the RAF going to get and when will they actually use them for real? Uh, 16 in total they're going to get. The first has arrived, uh, as you said. The other 15 are going to be phased in, um, but they're all expected to be delivered and in service by the summer of 2025. But the first, though, should, we're told, enter service late next year. Claire, good to speak to you. Thanks very much. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. Now, those of us who follow the politics of defence have a new name to take into account. Robert Courts, 
He's been a Conservative MP since 2016 and has just been elected as the new chair of the Commons Defence Committee. We've talked about their reports and their work a lot on SITREP and their recent report on the experiences of women in the armed forces, for example, has driven real change at the MOD. In his first statement as committee chair, Mr Courts said the armed forces need more support, more investment and more capacity, not less. Uh, Mike, uh, the committee's been saying things like that for years, though, hasn't it? Yes, it has. And um, it's important that somebody keeps on saying it. Um, but the importance of the committees also is that they pr- they produce evidence. Um, you know, having worked on these committees for some years, uh, no statement can ever be made in a committee report unless it is backed up with evidence that that committee has taken. So they're not just as we're flying a kite in these in these um, uh, reports that they produce. They produce hard evidence of somebody who has said this is the case or a document which has said this is the case. So they can't be be dismissed so easily and that's the benefit of these committees and and they're they're always as we're on the side of the personnel of the armed forces and in that respect the ministry of defense always says oh yes we take that really seriously but the committee has got to keep nagging and nagging and nagging on behalf of the boys and girls uh, on the front line so is this committee just a talking shop or does it really make a big difference to the forces? Uh, Lord Arbuthnot, then James Arbuthnot MP, chaired the Commons Defence Committee for nine years from 2005 until 2014. It makes a difference in two particular ways, I believe. If there is a decision which the government or the people it is interviewing are about to to take, but which isn't entirely clear which way it's going to go, it can make a difference at the margins. And the other way is that people have to prepare before giving evidence to a select committee. And so it makes them do their jobs better. Nobody wants to appear not to know their brief or appear to be made a fool of in public. And in your nine years as the chair, what do you feel the committee achieved for the UK's servicemen and women? One thing that we did do while I was chair of the committee was to make a point of visiting our armed forces, both in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And we also went to visit our armed forces all over the country and all over the world. That of itself kept us connected with them and I think it gave them an opportunity to talk to us and to influence the way in which they were treated and the things that we were able to learn from them. It was it was a valuable connection and I hope that it made them feel that the public of the country took notice of and cared about what they were doing. It's interesting that you say that being able to go out and meet service personnel meant they had an opportunity to influence you. I mean, what kind of things did they do? Did they did they achieve anything, do you think? Well, I remember one of the committee visits was to Cyprus. And there was quite a lot of dissatisfaction at the time with the way that our armed forces were being transported to and from Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think things improved after we went to visit Akrotiri. 
And clearly you did have your frustrations, though. Just one example from 2013. In one of your reports, you said the government needed to ensure education records followed forces children when they moved around, something you said you'd raised six years before. You can't make the ministers do anything, can you? You can't make the ministers do anything, but you can put it in the public domain when they fail to do something. And that of itself concentrates the minds of ministers. When the committee is saying one thing and the government is saying another in public, how often did you find um, you actually were agreeing behind closed doors? I can't remember having strong disagreements with the government except about the general level of defence spending. That was a major issue which we raised all the time. We said we ought to be spending more on defence. I still think we ought to be spending more on defence. The Defence Committee thinks now we ought to be spending more on defence. The trouble is there's very little money around. And did you have a lot of people wanting you to raise uh, particular concerns? I mean, I know you, you, you said that when you visited uh, service personnel, they were able to, to, to raise their concerns. Did that happen a lot? Uh, and were there particularly in, particular interests that were raised? It, it, it happened a bit, quite a bit. Um, but one of the problems with the armed forces is that they are the sort of people who will always make the best of whatever situation they're in. That is one of one of the reasons that they are so very, very good. And it was quite difficult for us as a committee to persuade people to say something was going wrong uh, because they thought they were letting the side down if they told us that something was going wrong. And that's always been an issue with the Defence Select Committee to try to stop those who are giving evidence to us or those who are meeting us and talking to us, that they are allowed to say, well, such and such could indeed be better. And at the very top, did, did no one ever put a little word in your ear? Put a word in my ear to say, to, to, to say what? Nobody ever tried improper influence of the Defence Committee to say, please don't say this, that or the other. Although they might have said, if you do a report on such and such, there will be bits that would have to be redacted. But nobody tried to say, don't say this because it would be embarrassing or damaging. If they had tried that, they'd have got very short shrift. But in terms of like trying to suggest something that should be looked at, was that did that ever happen to you? Oh, I see. Yes, yes. There were times when the government would say, would you please look into X, Y and Z because we aren't sure what the proper way forward is and it would be helpful if you had a look at it. For example, the service ombudsman was always eager to give us evidence because in our time she was very keen on the work of the select committee and we were very keen on the work of the service ombudsman. The same would apply to the Ministry of Defence itself. For example, we went to visit Headley Court uh, on a number of occasions and were very impressed with the way that the uh, with the way that the new Headley Court was built up. 
And how much do you think it matters who the chair of the Defence Committee is? Well, I think it does matter. Um, the committee needs to work as a team, as a community. I particularly loved the job. It was the best political job I'd ever had because uh, I knew that I was not to take into account government policy or opposition policy, but to do what I thought was the best thing for the country. And uh, so I could ignore political pressures and do what I thought was the right thing. That was the approach that the Defence Select Committee as a whole took. And it's important, I think, for the chair to bring that committee together to work as a community, uh, to work for the country. Lord Arbuthnot, former chair of the Commons Defence Committee. Mike, um, it's interesting he talks about the importance of meeting servicemen and women. The committee have just stood up to the government and won a U-turn, meaning every ser serving personnel can give formal evidence on accommodation problems. That's a win, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, the government were, were not going to do that and they thought they could get away with it. And the committee went quietly berserk and the press picked it up. And that's exactly how they can work. So that, that's it seems like a rather small concession, but it's a rather important one. And it, it re reflects what James Arbuthnot was saying there, that in a way, the committee is one of the best champions within the system of government for the armed services themselves. You've advised uh, that committee, you sat in front of them and given evidence. You know how it works in those wood-panelled Westminster corridors. Does the committee wield real power? Uh, yes, the bazaars of, of Westminster. <laughs> um, well, it can do. And the power of the committee, is it's all down to time and chance. It's the power of publicity. Because the committee itself is a committee of parliament. So the committee produces a report which it submits to parliament on behalf of the whole house. Really, those reports are directed to the outside world and to Whitehall. And you can see, I mean, I've seen in the years that I've been doing it, sometimes when committees make a difference. If, if the government knows it's going to get a real shallocking in a committee over things like that we had several issues over Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and they knew that by the time this report comes out, it'll have a list of really bitter criticisms with evidence, mm. the government very often changes its procedures in advance of the committee report coming out. And so when the report comes out, the committee says, oh, thank you very much. Yes, we've already changed our procedures, so that won't happen again. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and the point yeah. is, yeah, and so you can see sometimes that the actual work of the report mm. is changing what goes on in Whitehall. And then other times, when Whitehall, to be honest, sometimes it just insults the intelligence of the committee by saying, yeah, we don't agree with this. And do you know the committee's really hit back on that now? 10, 10 or 12 yeah. years ago, they tended to absorb it a bit more. They were annoyed, but they didn't do much. But the Defence Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, the committee I work with now, the National Security Committee, um, they are very keen to hit back on those sorts of um, statements. And they really go for, for government when they think that they're being taken for granted. And I think the, the committees have, they started in 1979, so they've been going a while now. They've really developed over the years, I've, and I've known them since 1979. Um, they've really developed over the years, and they're a very important part of the whole governmental process. And as we say, particularly important to the boys and girls in the forces.
Yeah, Mike, thank you so much for your time. You know, you left me with a thought that's just going to stay in my head, sort of that image of the Defence Committee going quietly berserk and quite what form that takes. We'll talk about that another time, maybe. Thank you to you and all of our guests. That That is all for now. Uh, Professor Michael Clark and I will be back with another SITREP next Thursday. If you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.